0: Well, in uh, 1516 to 1517, uh, Johann Tetzel was a friar um, and a papal commissioner for indulgences for the Catholic Church. Now, you're like, what is, what is that? Indulgences were basically payments uh, that people would make uh, to the church uh, to help, um, help them gain favor with God. But really what they did it for was to, in hopes of their loved ones who had died They believed in Catholic theology that there was this thing called purgatory, which is kind of this middle ground of sorts, not heaven, not hell, but a place where basically they go to work off some of the things that they had done wrong in their life, and you as a relative or friend could give money to the church, which would then help shave off some of those years. That may sound crazy, but that's exactly what was going on in the the early 16th century here. And so what he did is he was sent to Germany from Italy, he, was, he actually went there from the Roman Catholic Church uh, to raise money to rebuild uh, St. Peter's uh, Basilica in Rome. So it was really a way of trying to make money for the church to, uh, to build a bigger, a bigger building. Uh, again, Roman Catholic theology stated uh, that faith alone cannot justify a person, meaning you can't make a person right with God, okay with God. Um, it actually had to be something added to it. And so there, in their theology, faith alone cannot justify a person Uh, that only such faith as is active in charity and good works will do the trick. And again, the main way, charity and good works, is give us your money, okay? (laughs) That was kind of the way that they did it. You gave us money, all that, God would be good with you, we would build a bigger church and help your dead loved ones hopefully get out of purgatory in the process. It's a very sad system that was going on. Well, October 31st, the year 1517, okay, so just a year after Johann Tetzel started doing his work there, um, Martin Luther, which you may know that name, protested this sale of indulgences, this giving of money to the church to big, build bigger buildings, buildings. And so he protested that. That's where we get our word Protestant, by the way. We are a Protestant church, which is where we get the word, you know, it comes from the word protest. It all came from this, this moment in time. Luther wrote a letter to the church uh, protesting what they were doing. It became known as the 95 Thesis because there was 95 different points that he disagreed with. And uh, he dared, which he didn't do that at the time, um, basically buck the system and the authority at the time, which was Roman Catholic Church, and tell them the 95 things that they had wrong. Okay? So it was pretty bold of him to do. So he did that, and uh, the, he nailed it in order to communicate it at that time. They didn't have emails back then, by the way. Uh, they didn't have a way of passing on information. So the way you did it was you would take it and nail it to the door of a church so that they would come outside and read it, and everyone passing by would be able to read it as well. So he nailed it to the door of a church called All Saints Church, also known as Castle Church in, uh, in Wittenberg, uh, Germany. It was a strategic time that he did this, uh, very purposeful, because the next day was called All Saints Day, where people paid money, again, to the church, but they paid money to the church to, in order to see and witness relics. Again, that may be something you're like, what in the world is that? There were these props, I would call them, these, these things that they claimed came from the time of Jesus that were like in a jar, like a, a nail from the cross or something along those lines that they had kept from way back when, they said. And if you came and you witnessed that and you saw that, that again would give you favor with God and help shave off some years of purgatory for your loved ones. All a very elaborate system. And so this uh, 95 thesis, these statements that Luther nailed to that door, were quickly translated from Latin into Germany. They were printed and widely copied, making the controversy one of the first in history to be aided by the printing press that was just starting at that time. Within two weeks, copies of this document had spread throughout all of Germany and within two months spread throughout all of Europe. So you can imagine the firestorm (laughs) that that started because the Catholic Church ruled all of those areas at the time. Now Luther came to his conclusion that a man is justified, declared right by God uh, in in relationship with God, by faith alone, not by works, through a lot of trouble and a lot of pain and a lot of hardship. This wasn't easy. Uh, He was going against the grain again of the authority of the day, the Roman Catholic Church, which you did not question. So as a young man... Uh, he had bought the lie that it was through works that you're made right with God, meaning you gave money, you did good things, uh, you prayed, you did whatever it is you could do to kind of uh, show God your, your worth and value. So he bought that lie that God would love him and smile on him if he did the right things. So, in order to, to go all the way in, he wasn't going to play it halfway here. He was going to go full varsity on this one. He decided to be a monk, right? So, a monk was basically the you sell all your goods, your life, and you commit to a life of a singleness. And you go live in a monastery uh, and basically pray and sing and read your Bible all day. That's kind of what you do. And so he, he did that, uh, thinking that that would help rid himself of all of his sins and put God on his side. Uh, he would even at times, and this is all kind of in biographies. We've got some in the bookstore. You can read about some of this. But he would even at times lay out in the snow with no clothes on thinking that the, the harder he made it on himself and the more painful he felt, the more he would prove to God that, hey, I'm serious about how, how much I've, I've messed up. I'm serious about my sin. I, I really want you to forgive me. Look how, how much I'm paying for it myself. And that's what he would do. Sadly, uh, this, this didn't work. Luther actually was terrified of God, and he was afraid to die. A matter of fact, lightning storms, you can read about in his biography, were the most terrifying thing to him. Because in lightning storms he he saw that as the wrath of God ready to be poured out upon him. Matter of fact, he vowed to become a monk one time in in one of these storms. He was caught in a lightning storm and said, God, I'll do whatever you you know, talk about the situation. I'll do whatever you want if you get me out of the situation, caught in a lightning storm. He said, I'll even become a monk if you get me out of this. And so he got out of it and he became a monk. And then he tried to be the best monk he could. Here's what he said. Luther said this. He said, I was a I was a good monk. I kept my order strictly that I could, uh, that I could claim that even if, uh, if ever a monk were, a- were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. All my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out in this. For if it had continued much longer, I would, with vigils, prayer, readings, and other such works, have done myself to death. Uh, I think it's, I would love to have been one of the other guys in the room, because I could tell by his kind of... Uh, Well, we know as the story goes on, his passion and his kind of uh, hard-headedness in some ways, I'm sure made for a very interesting roommate. So even after Luther was ordained, he finally became ordained, transferred from a monk to to working his, uh, performing his first mass for the Catholic Church. He said in in his biography, he said, I almost ran away in doing it. Like he spilled half the the wine, like he was just terrified to stand before God uh, as a human being. Just the thought of God's majesty and holiness, he couldn't grab a hold of the fact or the thought that God could possibly love him or that God could possibly be for him. There's just no way. He said this, he said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I'd stand on my head for joy. He's like, I just wanted that so badly to believe that. But it was through Paul's letter to the Galatians that were studying uh, that he was finally set free from that. He, he utterly hated God. Uh, before studying the book of Galatians for what he felt was a burden too big to bear. He had tried everything to absolve his conscience and to be made right with God, but he still felt that God was tremendously distant and far away from him until he got to this book. It was particularly the concept of the righteousness of God, which we'll see a lot of in the book of Galatians, that really bothered him the most because he felt like he could never never get there. He he could never have that. And then one day, the light broke through for him, the righteousness of God was not something he learned, was not something he could earn, but something that had to be received by faith in the finished work of Jesus. He needed a what we call a passive righteousness, not an active righteousness. He needed something given to him, something done by someone else, not something he himself could actively do to gain. He realized, in essence, that the Bible was not about him, and what did he need, what he needed to do for God, but about Jesus and what he came to do for him. That is a radical, different way of looking at the Bible. Let me say that again. He understood that the Bible was not about him and what he needed to do for God. In other words, it was a list of rules and regulations and stories to inspire him to act better, right? It was actually a story about Jesus from cover to cover, right? It was about him and what he came to do for him. Completely blew his mind, changed his soul, changed his life, and, by the way, changed society and and all that we understand it to be. Uh, It was particularly strong for him was this one passage in Galatians. Galatians 3.11, here's what it says. Now it is evident that no one is justified, again, declared right, in relationship with God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Here was Luther's comment on that verse. He said, I, did not, I do not seek my own act of righteousness. I ought to, have, ought to have it, but I declare that even if I did have it, I cannot trust in it or stand up before the judgment of God on the basis of it. In other words, there's just nothing I can do. Thus, I embrace only the righteousness of Christ, which we do not perform but receive, which we do not, not have but accept when God the Father grants it to us through Jesus Christ. So through studying this book, Luther formulated some very important thoughts, and maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not, but there was these things he called the, it was, was formulated called the five solas. You're like, what's the solas? Not solar, sola, S-O-L-A, and there was five of them. Here's, here, I'll put them on the screen here. Uh, the first one was called sola scriptura, it's a Latin phrase, which means by scripture alone. And then was sola fide, which is, means by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola Christo, through Christ alone, and Sola Dea Gloria, glory to God alone. Those those five right there, those alone statements or sola statements, was what came out of his study from Galatians that completely set the Reformation into play, and really why we are even here existing as a church today was because of this study. As you imagine, people started to come from everywhere to hear Luther speak now. And one of the first things he preached on and wrote uh, wrote about was, was the book of Galatians, his commentary is over 1,500 pages in Latin, if you, if you want to read that. Um, but it was his favorite. It was his favorite among all the biblical books. Uh, just don't ask him about the book of James. He had a different opinion about that one. Um, well, it was, uh, well, it was this book that, that launched the Reformation. It was also this book, so you understand, that launch was, was also called the Great Awakening. Okay, if you're familiar with that, that was kind of the American, or early on in American history kind of uh, Reformation that took place here on, on, our, on our land here. It was in the late 1730s, there was a group of believers that would, would actually be end up changing the world as well. Uh, they were led by uh, brothers, John and, Wesley, uh, John and Charles Wesley, who helped start the Methodist church, if you're familiar with that. These guys were seeking uh, to find God, and they had a friend. William Holland was his name. He was a friend of the, the two Wesley brothers. He found a, com- a copy of a commentary by Luther on the book of Galatians. And he gave a copy of it uh, to Charles, Um, and asked him to read the preface, just the beginning, the introduction. And as he read it, William himself was transformed and saved by the actual just reading of the introduction of the commentary. Here's what William Holland said. Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud. At the words, what, have we then nothing to do? No, nothing, but only accept him who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There came such power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My my companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground under my feet. He leaves the room. He goes down the street, begins to just knock on doors to tell them what just happened to him. And one of the doors he came to was Charles's brother, John. John came in. He, uh, he, he sorry, went in to visit John, and John, he read the, the introduction of the commentary to John, and here's what happened to John. He said, John Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I, I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Charles, his brother, said this, I spent some hours this evening in private with Luther, who has greatly blessed me. I labored, waited, and prayed to feel who loved me and gave himself for me, the Wesley brothers were both came to Christ through the through the beginning of reading the Book of Galatians and um, Luther's commentary on it. This book is powerful. It's been used by God to change not only the churches we understand it today, but cultures throughout history. The Reformation, the Great Awakening, are some of the most pivotal times in human history. And it will change you if you will listen to it. How how will it change you? And that's what I want to look at today. how How will a book How will the study of the Book of Galatians change us? Well, there's two things. We have to yield to the authority. We'll see a lot about authority in this book. And we also have to revel in the gospel or delight in the gospel. Those are kind of the two points. Let's look at that. Number one, yield to the authority. Paul opens up this letter by saying, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, all ancient uh, letters begin with salutations, kind of like our emails today of to, from, and, you know, subject matter. Salutations are kind of the, hey, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Hi, my name is Paul kind of thing. And this salutation is the largest opening of any of Paul's letters, okay? It's the largest opening. He begins his message uh, here, and they, almost everything he says later in the book, he says right here in the first couple of verses. And you notice here he's writing to the churches in Galatia. We just finished studying that first half of the book of Acts. We got to 13 and 14. And that was the chapter we looked at last week where Paul and Barnabas visited the church, the area of Galatia. Modern day Turkey is where that's at. And, uh, and it was a region, not a city, not a person that Paul is writing to, which again is unique among all of his letters. He's writing to a whole group of churches within a general region. If you remember, they they preached the gospel to that region, revisited uh, that region, included cities like Iconium, Derbe, Lystra, uh, Attilia, and others. In the city of Lystra, we talked about last week, the the Gentiles, the people in that that city, uh, saw uh, Paul heal, a lame man. If you remember that, they kind of panicked, right? They kind of freaked out, thinking uh, they called Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes, the gods of the Greeks. They thought they'd come to visit them again, remember? And they, they proceeded to try to worship worship them and, and give them all kinds of gifts. And and so they all that's going on, and we find out as they were doing that, some Jewish people came from other regions who didn't like Paul and Barnabas, remember? They came into the city, they convinced this very fickle crowd that was trying to worship Paul and Barnabas to not worship them, but to try to kill them. And you remember, Paul was stoned, so much so that he was thought to be dead, they dragged him out of the city, left him outside the gate, shut the door. Paul's laying there with, you know, apparently they think dead. He gets up, what's he do? Turns around, goes right back in the city, preaches the gospel again to the city, and you know what happens? Churches were started in Galatia through that preaching of the gospel. That's how this, these churches came about. That was one of the first ones in Galatia was right there in the city of Lystra. So these churches, so we understand because it's important for the rest of the book, these churches were full of young believers, pretty fickle, okay? We saw them, right? They, in, in one minute, they're trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. The next minute, they're trying to kill them. So they're pretty, a pretty fickle crowd. Uh, they don't know a lot about Jesus. They know enough to, to understand who, who he is and what he's come to do for them and to be in a relationship with God, but a lot of it they don't understand. They've been attacked by some Jewish people who do know a lot about the Bible And are trying to convince them that, hey, you need Jesus, that's fine if you want to take Jesus, but you need Jesus plus something. told you last week that basically the theme of the book of Galatians is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But they're trying to say Jesus plus something, right? Jesus plus prayers, Jesus plus readings, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus giving, Jesus plus serving the poor, Jesus plus whatever is everything. So they're trying to add. So the whole book of Galatians is Paul going like, no, 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 no. Don't don't be easily swayed again. I know you're a fickle crowd. You tried to kill me. You tried to worship me. Then you tried to kill me. And now you're kind of going with this Jewish crowd. They're sometimes called Judaizers, maybe a phrase you've heard before. And they're trying to get Paul, uh, the churches in Galatia, to follow uh, basically this whole Jesus plus uh, kind of idea. And so they're easily uh, kind of swayed by that. And so Paul must step in quickly with this letter to establish uh, the authority of Jesus and, uh, and reclaim the gospel, all right. So that's what he's doing. We have to yield to the authority. So what, what, what authority do we yield to? Well, he says it right at the very beginning, right? The authority here is Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's the authority. It's not man. Matter of fact, Paul is writing under their authority. He is called an apostle. He sent, sent one from God, is what the word means. And notice he says he's not only, he was not only not sent from men, but he also was not sent through men. In other words, this is unique to Paul. He's saying, look, I didn't, I didn't get this idea from somebody else. I didn't get sent by somebody else. I got this from God himself. I met Jesus face to face. Remember Acts 9? He met Jesus face to face. He's like, I, I met him. Trust me. <laughs> I was blinded by it. I met him. My life was changed. Uh, he, he taught me this. And I'm, I'm now giving you straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, what was delivered to me. And so that's what he is. That's what he's communicating um, you say, why? Why is Paul throwing kind of his weight around here, like you got to listen to me type thing? Isn't that kind of arrogant? No, it's not. And he'll get he'll get some really strong language. You you read the rest of chapter one; it's pretty strong. I mean, Paul's like not playing around here. It's like you guys need to yield to the authority that I'm telling you, um, and there's no options here. It's important because the very gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. At stake, and Jesus had had told it to him. Remember, these churches again are full of new believers. And they're like children with very little discernment. They're easily swayed, they're very gullible uh, in that way. If you have little kids, you know what this is like. I remember, <laughs> speaking of uh, Reformation Day, also known as Halloween in our culture, October 31st, um, I remember when our kids were little, when they would go out you know, and get candy and stuff, we always had a rule as a family, like, no, you can't eat any of it until mom and dad inspect it, right? This is, we have to inspect the candy and make sure everything's good and what you have, etc. And I remember uh, one time doing that, and one of the, I don't remember which one it was at this point, if I did, I would say it, but I don't remember who it was, who said, that? Who said, I know what bad candy looks like. I'm like, what does it have, crossbones on it or something? Like, I mean, how do you know what bad, you know, oh, I know what bad candy looks like. It's like, no, okay, you don't understand. Like, you're way too gullible and, and naive here to do that. And that's kind of what it's like with this church. Like, Paul's like, guys, you've got to yield to the authority. I know you think you know, but you don't know, <laughs> and you need me to tell you this, and you need to follow what I'm I'm laying before you. And so we must yield to the authority of God's word, not our traditions passed on through the church or even through our family. Traditions can be good, all right? They can be a good thing, but they're not gospel. The word of God always trumps all of the thoughts and traditions. And just because something has been practiced before, just like when Luther, you know, went after the Reformation and protested the Catholic Church, things were bad, things were wrong, right? They were traditions passed on, but they weren't good ones. They didn't match up with Scripture, and so, and so he protested them. Scripture is the final authority. We must yield to the authority of God's Word, not our own ideas and our own conscience. Uh, we have a cultural uh, problem with this, right, around us. Many in our culture tell, will tell us to follow, follow your own thoughts, right? Follow your dreams, Make your own path. Don't let anyone tell you what to think or do or believe, right? Form that for yourself. Pretty common uh, thought around us. Um, And I would say that that's not a good idea. Uh, If you're familiar with uh, Pinocchio, there was this guy named Jiminy Cricket. Remember him? And uh, remember his theme to Pinocchio? Let your conscience be your guide. Oh, come on. There's got to be some Disney. Where's Eddie at? There's Disney fans around here. Come on. Um, Let your conscience be your guide, right? That's what he told him. Matter of fact, here's what he said. Uh, Jiminy uh, said this to Pinocchio. He says, a conscience is that, because Pinocchio's like, what's a conscience? He says, a conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. That's just the trouble with the world today. They won't listen to that still small voice. And I would say that Jiminy is a fool, right? (laughs) That's been the motto of serial killers for years. They listen to the still small voice. That's not a good idea, right? Right. So we we have to have an authority to tell us, okay, what am I supposed to listen to or not? Following my own conscience and my own ideas and the little thoughts in my head aren't always the best idea, right? That's why we have the word of God. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we're studying it together, right? We have to yield to the authority there to guide and direct us from that. Um, 2 Timothy 3, Paul would write this to Timothy. He would say this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So to yield to the authority. Um, but see, number two, why, why should I care? Why should I care about that? Why should I care about doctrine, theology, you know, all this stuff? You should care because doctrine is absolutely critical for your life. Uh, this, is, uh, this letter okay, is a little different than we studied in the book of, of Acts or even Matthew. It's extremely doctrinal, extremely technical. Um, and it's combating things like false teaching a lot throughout the letter. And that may sound very like, impractical to you. Like, why are we studying that? Why is that important? And most people think it's bad to debate doctrine or defend sound doctrine. And, of course, the manner in which you do that is important. Okay, that is important how you do it. But to do it is a good thing. You say, no one should really tell you what is right or wrong. Well, I mean, think about the fact of why, why are there genocides? You know, why did those things happen today? Is it because people sat around a campfire one night and thought, hmm, what's the worst thing in the world I could possibly do? Got it. I'll go do that. Do you understand that most of those things that have gone on throughout history that are horrible to even read or study happen because of doctrine, a belief system about, right? People said Hitler did what he did because he, he had a doctrinal understanding of the value of people here and the value of people here. And because these people are more important than these people, these people need to be eliminated, right? That's doctrine. <laughs> That's understanding. If you're, you say, why, why is this important? Because if you're ever going to love somebody, you're ever going to care about somebody, you're going to have to combat false teaching and give good doctrine. You say, really? I don't, I don't do that. You ever try to talk someone out of suicide? You ever try to tell somebody not to do it? What are you doing? You are combating false ideas, right? I have no value, I have no worth, right? You're combating false ideas, false doctrine, and you're importing good teaching, right? You're teaching, no, there is value, there is worth. You are made in God's image, right? You're, you're, you're doing doctrinal debate, okay? This is why doctrine is important. It's extremely practical, okay? Okay. Um, I don't know where I was in my notes, sorry. (laughs) I lost track. So that's why why we should care about it. um, How does does Jesus have authority, number three? So we're saying submit to the authority, submit to the authority of Jesus. Well, how does he have authority? And Paul's statement here is the resurrection. That's that's why he has authority, right? someone comes back from the dead, you probably should listen to what they have to say, right? That's probably pretty important. He came back from the dead. Uh, It's not something Paul has forgotten about. Remember? His first encounter with Jesus was the resurrected Jesus, right, on the road uh, that he was there on Emmaus. And that absolutely transforms him and absolutely is something he always remembered. Uh, matter of fact, if you look at the, the way this, this chapter, the beginning of the, the book is laid out, he actually inverts the order of we typically think about, you know, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. He starts with resurrection. Oh, and then death and life. <laughs> he puts it at the top because that's how important it was to him. It's the resurrection of Jesus that secures the authority of all that he said, right? If he remained in the grave and didn't rise again, then you could chuck whatever it was he said, right? It's the resurrection that actually gave the authority to what he actually said. As I said before, like we were studying Galatians, I'm sorry, studying Acts, it's not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You have to come up with a uh, historically feasible alternative explanation for the birth of the church, the radical reformation that took place, transformation that took place in the lives of people. Um, the belief in the resurrection is what motivated them. Ridicule, prison, torture, death would not stop them. Why? Because they saw Jesus alive. That's why they died the way they did. That's why they said the things that they said. If the resurrection is a hoax or fabrication in some way, then what about that power to, to produce such people whose lives were completely changed, who gave, them, gave their lives up for, for what, they, what they saw. The resurrection of Jesus converts people. We saw this in the, every chapter in the book of Acts. Christianity was, again, never understood as a set of teachings or ethics that, sh- that one took up, right? Oh, okay, I got some rules I need to follow. It was a power that takes you up, okay? It transforms you. It's not something you do for it. It's something that it does for you. It converts you. It changes you from the inside out. So when we talk about why does Jesus have authority, why should I submit to it, it's like, again, um, if uh, to just talk about the teachings of Jesus and debate which ones you like or don't like really don't doesn't matter because if he rose from the dead you got to take it all <laughs> there's no you can't throw out this or that there's no debate over that if he rose from the dead you got to take the whole thing the resurrection changes everything it gives the words of Jesus authority number two the second thing we'll learn in this in this book of Galatians is is to revel or delight in the gospel. I love how Luther put it this way. He said, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) Luther's pretty straightforward. He says what he thinks. Um, But it's true, right? That's what he's saying. The most important truth in the world is the doctrine, the gospel, which is justification by faith alone, apart from works. It was this very doctrine that was being doubted by these churches in Galatia, uh, just like in Luther's day. Paul writes this book to tell them to basically get back into the game, stop it, exchanging God's grace in the gospel for a performance-based Christianity, right? Performance-based. I'm basically, I, what, what is that? I base my sanctification, my my current status with God, I base it off of, of how well I'm doing. Or another way you could say I base my justification, how am I doing with God, am I okay with God, on my sanctification, right? Am I doing okay? And so my whole life is up and down. I may be good, I may be bad. God may be for me, maybe against me. Depends on how I'm doing, right? That's a terrible place to live. And so, um, so the, the, this group of people in Galatia believe God's love... Um, they believe God loves them probably, but secretly they suspect his love is conditional in some ways. It depends on how they're doing in life. Again, base their justification on their sanctification, and they're miserable as a result. You say, well, I don't, you know, I don't do that. I totally believe the gospel. I do not base my justification on my sanctification. I don't base my, my relationship with God on how I'm doing. Um, do you? Let's <laughs> ask some diagnostic questions here to kind of see how do we actually fail to believe the gospel on a daily basis. Let me just give you one for just practically where you're sitting right now. If I ask you this, why do you sing the way you do on Sunday? On any given Sunday, like, why do you do it? Well, some people come to church, sing their heart out. Why? Because, man, I had a good week. I nailed it this week, man. I mean, I obeyed, I obeyed God in most cases. I didn't yell at the kids too much, and I didn't kick the cat at all, right? It was a great week. It was a wonderful week. You're like, why would you kick the cat? I don't like cats, um, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that about dogs. But if you're a cat person, it, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, but um, but then other Sundays, the same people will come into church and they'll <laughs> mumble the words, head down, downcast. Why? Yeah, I didn't have a good week, right? I I bayed, bayed Jesus very little. Um, I yelled at the kids quite often, and I, I did kick the cat, right? I mean, it was like it was a bad week this week. And so your whole emotional response to God and what you're singing about and the truths that you're proclaiming is all based on your performance. That's not believing the gospel, you see? That's a very practical way of looking at it. Both these responses are are the result of basing your justification off your sanctification. It's the subtle thought that I'm better or worse in God's eyes based on my current behavior. This is what was happening to the people in Galatia the Christians there. That's so what was happening. They were, they were waffling on, Is it, I'm a, am I good with God, am I not? And it was kind of a miserable place to be. Let me give you another example. It's another practical example. You ever had um, something, something bad happen? Let's just say something maybe simple, like so say you get a flat tire. You're riding on the road, you know, um, and you get a flat tire. You pull over. What's the first thought that comes to your head? Sometimes people, you know they, they get a flat tire, it's a Christian, they pull over, and they sit in the car, and they're going like, okay, God, what did I do to deserve this? right? Or take any kind of situation, right? What did I do to deserve this? What are you saying in that comment? You're basing, again, your justification on your sanctification. God, I I thought I was having a pretty good week. Why did you do this to me? (laughs) Right? It's a whole works-based relation. You've totally forgotten the gospel here, it's not, again, the Bible's not about you and what you need to do for God. It's about Jesus and what he came to do for you. That understanding is super crucial to moving out and actually doing all the things that God wants us to do, right? We do it out of love for him, out of grace motivated, not out of guilt, not at trying to earn favor with him. So the gospel, the, the passive righteousness of Jesus is something you must come back to day after day. It's something you must cling to when you are troubled and tempted and when you're successful and happy. For human beings, by nature, when they get near danger or death itself, will of necessity examine our own worthiness. We start start examining. Uh, We defend ourselves before all threats by recounting our good deeds and moral efforts, but then the remembrance of our sins and flaws inevitably, inevitably comes to mind, and this just tears us apart. And we think, how many how many errors and sins and wrongs I have done. Please, God, let me live long enough to fix them, to amend them, right? I'll I'll prove to you I'm good. This is is the forgetting and misunderstanding of the gospel. We become obsessed with our own active righteousness and we're terrified by its imperfections. But the real evil is that we trust in our own power to be righteous and we won't lift up our eyes to see what Jesus has done for us. And so the troubled conscience has no cure for its desperation and feeling of unworthiness unless it takes hold of the forgiveness offered by Christ, by grace, free of charge, his righteousness. A matter of fact, if you flip over and just look, uh, it's on my next page here, but look at, Paul's going to say this over and over again, but if you look at chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh because I'm so united with Christ and because I'm justified by faith alone, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's going to keep saying that. It's like, do you get it? Do you get it? Do you get the gospel? Do you understand grace? And the thing is, is that you can say cognitively yes, but probably in an hour you totally forget it. <laughs> this is why you're like, if you've been here for any length of time, we get to Jesus in the gospel every Sunday. And it's not just for you who don't know Jesus. It definitely is for you, but it's for you who do. <laughs> not so that you get saved over and over again. That's not the process. Okay? That's not how it works. But to get you back to, as Paul, um, sorry, Peter would say in 2 Peter 1, we become blinded, having forgotten the grace that we've received. Right? And it's so important. So this creates a, 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 di- a radical new dynamic for discipline and obedience. First, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit Think about that. If we understand the gospel, it makes it easier to admit that we are flawed. We can do that because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. I can do that to God. I can tell him exactly what's going on deep in my soul because he longs for what lies in the depths of my soul, and I can tell him, and it can be dark and hideous down there, but I'm okay with that because he's not going to run away. First of all, he already knows. (laughs) But second of all, I'm in a relationship with God based on grace, not on my performance, so I can be honest I can be real. It creates a culture of transparency and genuineness in the church. Not a, it's, it's not a not a show anymore. It's not like look how good I am kind of thing and look how I got things together. It it becomes like very much a take the mask off and you become real. Because I'm okay. I mean I, I I'm working on this and repentance, the grace leads me to repentance and leads me to change. Totally true. But I can be real and I can be honest about where I'm at. Second, it makes the law of God, the gospel makes the law of God a thing of beauty instead of a burden, right? We can use it to delight and imitate the one who has saved us rather than to try to get his attention or to try to procure his favor, right? It just totally makes a law like, okay, this is good. This is good for me. God, you know, I think of um, Deuteronomy. says this quite a few times that God actually, you know, I I wrote this for your good. (laughs) It's like a parrot talking to a kid. I know you don't understand the rules here. They don't make sense to you, but trust me on this one. I've written this for your good, Right? And that, it, so the law becomes a thing for our good, not a thing that is a burden or a thing that we use to kind of procure His favor. We, we now run the race for the joy that is set before us, as Hebrews says, rather than for the fear that comes behind us. So, what is this gospel? What it, and Paul lays it out right here. Let's look at it. Paul includes it in his beginning here. Number one, part of the gospel is, first of all, the willingness of Jesus. Notice it says there that He gave Himself. Right? It's important. He gave Himself. This uh, gospel, this Jesus going to the cross thing was not, a, not an oops. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't like, oh, man, what are we going to do now? Okay, I guess we'll, we'll throw in the resurrection. Okay, we'll make that happen. It was all part of the plan. He gave himself. He laid down his own life, as he'll say in the, in the gospel of John. And so the gospel begins with understanding the willingness of God, the willingness of Jesus. God didn't have to do anything, guys. He didn't have to do anything in our situation. He wasn't obligated to himself to do anything for us. He willingly chose to do something for us. He could have left us here. It's not like we wanted anything to do with him. (laughs) Uh, Even right at the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 5, says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not a good commentary on us. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty bad. That's bad, it's good, it's true commentary, but it's a bad commentary on how we feel about it because it's true. Um, But the amazing news is that our creator is a pursuer, right? He didn't leave us here to to wallow in our own sin and stupidity and foolishness. He took the initiative to come after us. And notice in this whole section, this whole beginning of Galatians, uh, that we are contributing absolutely nothing but our sins to the situation. That's what we contribute to the deal. (laughs) That's why uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a pastor in England during the 20th century, and he uh, was like a, the doctor to the queen and all that stuff. It's, it's some great biographies to read on him. He, he, he labeled this the great exchange. He called it the great exchange. I, so I, to the deal with God, I contribute sin, and that's it. And then I get righteousness and perfection and joy in heaven. Mm, that's, a, that's an unfair great exchange, right? I mean, that's, but that it is. It's a great exchange. I'll willingly give you my garbage here, and you give me greatness, right? That's basically how it works. I get the holiness and greatness of God and relationship with God. My contribution is only my sin. We are passive, he's active. We are running away, he's pursuing. We are the lost sheep, and he is the seeking shepherd. So Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, again, we're not accidents, they're not plan Bs. They were intentional, strategic plans made before the foundations of the, of the world. The cross is no great tragedy, but a triumph. And Jesus willingly laid down his life. Here's what he said in in the Gospel of John. He said, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I've received from the Father. In Ephesians 5, Paul would address husbands and compare it to Christ. He said, husbands, love your wives. as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Titus 2, verse 14, says, speaking of Jesus who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. Hebrews twelve, two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the willingness of Jesus is where the gospel starts. Then it moves into the sacrifice of Jesus. It says He He gave Himself for our sins. The really the phrase is on behalf of us is the idea. He died in our place. In theology, we call this substitutionary atonement, right? He he took our place. That was our cross to bear. He took it instead for us. Um, This was laid out really clearly about 750 750 years before Jesus even came on the scene in the book of Isaiah. It said this, speaking of Jesus, who was to come. Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like uh, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he is born, our griefs carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That was all speaking of Jesus way hundreds of years before he even came on the scene. He took our punishment, we got his righteousness. Again, that great exchange is what happened. We didn't lift a finger, contribute anything other than our own sin. We had nothing to the deal. There's an old hymn called Come Ye Sinners and put it this way in one of the lines. says, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. What? That's all, he, that's all he requires? Yeah, <laughs> that's faith. I'll say it again. Let my conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. You see, what? out of all the things, God set this system up, this whole how do we get in a relationship with God based on faith alone. God set it up as faith alone. You ever ask the question, why did he choose that mechanism? <laughs> why faith alone and why not works? I mean, God could have, obviously. He's God. He could have set it up any way he wanted to. Why do you do that? Because faith is the one attitude of heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. Isn't it? When we come to Christ, we're basically saying, by faith, we're saying, I give up. <laughs> I, I, I will not depend on myself anymore. I will not depend on my own good works any longer. I trust and depend on Jesus alone to give me a right standing with God and to lead my life. And if it's by faith and not by works, then God is in the position, okay? He's in the position of the giver. I heard uh, John Piper say this one time. He, he gets in the, God is now the position of the giver, and guess what the giver gets? The giver gets the glory. You ever get a birthday gift or Christmas gift? What, what do you say? You always teach the kids this, right, when they're little. What do you say? Thank you, right? <laughs> the giver always gets the glory, right? They're the one who gets thanked. They're the ones who, who are in the position of glory, and that's exactly why God put himself in that position, right? The giver always gets the glory. I'm gonna give, and you guys are gonna glorify me as a result of that. That's why it's set up by faith alone. Uh, Thirdly, it leads to the power of Jesus. And it says here to deliver us from the present evil age. Every religion has a founder that basically says they've come to help you find God. Here are the steps. Here's the process. Here are the rules, the laws, the pillars, or whatever else it may be. Jesus is the only one who said he was God come to find you the word here deliver means to be to take out or to, to set free or to rescue matter of fact the word deliver is used by Jesus in Matthew 20 uh, Matthew 5:29 for plucking out an eye that's a strong wow that's a that's a pretty strong to to pull out is the to to actually pluck out out the eye and so christianity is a is a rescue religion if you're drowning you don't need someone to throw you a book on how to swim right if you're drowning you don't need a lecture on the technique of swimming, like here's how you do it, here's how you stay afloat, you can do it, you need somebody to jump in and get you. And that's exactly what Christianity is. When God saw us drowning, he didn't throw a book at us and he didn't throw a lecture at us, he dove in himself and died in the process to rescue us. That's the core of the gospel. And the phrase here, it says, deliver us from the present evil age, is saying that our salvation, this is so important to you understand this, our salvation is so much more than just a a ticket to heaven. That's not, that's not the, the end of what salvation is. It's definitely a beautiful part of it. But that's not the, the only thing salvation is. It has implications right now, right? Ephesians 2 will talk about that we're rescued already from this present evil age. We have this already and not yet idea going on. I'm already rescued, and yeah, I'm in the process of being rescued. God left me here, right, to work through this. And it also has, um, has not completely happened. Jesus has rescued us from the present evil age But he hasn't taken us us out of it just yet. The world is overcome, but not yet. That's why Jesus would say in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this evil age he speaks of here is dominated by sin, opposed to God. It's full of corruption and decay and death. It's dominated by the evils of war and murder and oppression, and Jesus died to deliver us from all of that. And get this, it's not just an individual thing, but deliver us together. In other words, there's a sense of, uh, even in this whole idea of being delivered from the present evil age, is the idea not of pulling away from the world and isolating ourselves into our Christian ghetto kind of idea. It's actually the idea of uh, being immersed in it and being used by God to help bring about that change in the places in which we live. We even find the whole mission here in this whole statement The age to come has burst into the present age. We ourselves no longer have to live the way we used to live when we were under the power of evil. Paul would say it here later in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We have been set free from the power and persuasion of the world. We have a greater power, greater love, greater treasure now in Jesus. We're not of this world any longer, but have been brought out of this world to be sent back into the world as servants and missionaries. Lastly, the glory of Jesus. It says at the end here, to whom be the glory forever, amen. This is the ultimate reason. Again, I told you the giver gets the glory, right? That's why it's set up the way it is. You want to be in a relationship with God? Based on faith alone and Christ alone. It's all about him, it's not about you, okay? Um, That's that whole sola sola dea gloria thing that that Luther would write, we talked about earlier. So in other words, our theology must turn into doxology here, we should, be, we should be the one, um, he should be the one we value, rejoice, and treasure in. We live to make much of him. You say, how do we glorify God? How do we magnify him? Um, not like a microscope, uh, but like a telescope. Uh, we are not saying, we say we want we to worship God, we want to make much of God in our life. We're not saying, God, you're just so teeny tiny and so insignificant. Let's sing some songs really loud and let's say some really big things so people so you look bigger to people. Like that that's not what we mean by worship. That's not what we mean by magnify or glorifying God. The idea is more like we worship God like a like a telescope. We're trying to get, we're trying to, we're trying to grasp words and, and, and express as best we can the absolute greatness and holiness of God that is so massive and so great that we're, we're, we're lacking words here. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to put into words, we're trying to explain, trying to put into perspective, trying to get you to see how valuable and worthy and, and glorious he is. Right. That's what we mean by worship and glorifying God. That's why sometimes uh, the Bible even advocates for silence. <laughs> right. In the gospel it says, be still and know that I'm God. Just zip it. You just need to be still for a minute. Try to grasp Uh, the greatness of God. So we're studying the book of Galatians to yield ourselves to the authority of God in Scripture and to revel or rejoice in the gospel, to recenter ourselves in the gospel. Uh, This will put God in the right place in our thoughts, in our worship, and in our lives, and us in the right place as well. So we're more effective for living for Jesus out of love for him instead of trying to earn his favor. At 3 a.m. on February 18th, 1546 Martin Luther died his last recorded words were this we are beggars this is true (laughs) Luther understood that's what we are we're all beggars undeserving of God's grace and yet that very grace is what motivates us and empowers us and moves us so that we as, as God's people are sent out today as beggars I heard someone say this one time. There's a great way to put it. We're just one beggar telling other beggars where, where where the bread is found. Right? His bread's over here. It's good. <laughs> we God found us. We we wanted, wanted to show you this. Right? That's all we are. One beggar telling another beggar where the where, where the bread is because it's all about grace. It's not about us. Again, the Bible's not about me and what I do for God. It's about Jesus and what He came to do for us. And so, in a moment here, we're gonna we're gonna transition to communion, and we're gonna do this. We do this at the end of every month, and our pastor Eddie will come up here in just a moment. Um, to, to take it corporately, take it together. And he'll explain a little bit more about why we do that once a month so we understand it. So, but I want to give you an opportunity to kind of just have some quiet time with God. Maybe it's a good opportunity to go like, what, are you, what do you want to see God do through your life through the study of Galatians? How do you see the gospel needing to penetrate your heart and life uh, even now? What areas of life does God need to work on? And maybe that's an opportunity to kind of just put that before him right, before we get to communion as well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for uh, the gospel. This book of Galatians, that is just gonna say it over and over again, <laughs> that uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That, Lord, it's all about you and not about us. That, God, when we really get the gospel, we understand that it is a grace-based relationship with you, not of works, not of anything we can do or have done. God, that, that freedom That position, that understanding sets us free to live for you in ways that we never could. God, to be motivated out of grace instead of being motivated out of guilt or trying to capture your attention or earn your favor, God, is radically different. And when we go to serve people, when we go to love people, when we go to tell people about you and we are doing it out of love for you and out of grace that we've received, people see the difference in that. And we do it out of guilt or trying to earn favor with you, they feel that too. God, people become not a project. (laughs) They just become people that we love and people we care about because of how much you love and care for us. We pray, God, you help us as a church get the gospel deep into our soul, deep into our minds, so that, God, we are transformed in how we love one another, how we love our families, and how we love our neighbors and the people in this world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.